This Washington Post Live podcast is sponsored by World Food Program USA. Join us in creating a zero hunger world. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Hello, and welcome to the Washington Post Live. I'm Laura Riley, a reporter covering the business of food at The Post. Today, we're going to discuss the global hunger crisis and how the public and private sectors are working to produce long-term solutions. Later, we'll hear from Alex Chequiem, co-founder and CEO of DigiFarm Smart Agriculture. But first, I'm joined by Isabel Coleman, USAID Deputy Administrator for Policy and Programming. Isabel, welcome to The Washington Post Live. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's wonderful to meet you. So um, we are obviously uh, in a period of extreme uh, food insecurity globally, and roughly, as the, that video showed, 345 million are in a state of acute food insecurity. Can you talk a little bit about the chief drivers of that and what you attribute it to right now? Sure. So there are lots of different numbers that float around. I mean, we look at uh, the 800 million people who are experiencing chronic hunger, and then within that, different categories of people who are increasingly uh, more food insecure and facing really acute conditions, even down to the 45 million children who are experiencing severe acute malnutrition. Um, and you can see them just wasting away, literally, it's it's called wasting in front of your eyes. I'm just back from Pakistan and went to Northern Sindh and saw some of these children and it's, it's the most heartrending thing to see. Um, but as your video noted, there are a couple of different drivers of this, starting with um, climate change. We've seen drought affect uh, different parts of the world that have reduced uh, crop yields for subsistence farmers um, across many different regions. And then the COVID uh, pandemic compounded that. Uh, you had a lot of uh, disruptions to supply chains and farmers didn't plant and missed seasons and weren't able to get their goods to markets. All of those things trickled through the system. And then on top of it, you had Russia's unprovoked uh, invasion of Ukraine. You had one uh, global breadbasket uh, uh, producer invading another, and the ramifications of that have been huge. And then, of course, uh, macroeconomic conditions more recently with uh, inflation and with currency depreciation and many of the countries that are big food importers, even though global food prices have come down, uh, since their peak last year. For the biggest food importing countries, a lot of them have seen their currencies devalued and their real price of food imports uh, remain high. Um, and and you haven't, uh, they haven't really experienced those uh, declining global uh, food prices in the same ways as some other countries. So in real terms, food prices remain uh, extraordinarily high for hundreds and hundreds of millions of people around the world. So uh, according to the World Food Program, nearly 60% of the world's hungriest people live in just a few countries. Can you explain where that is and, and what that is? I'm assuming some of it relates to the, the their net, massive net importers uh, of their, their staple goods, but can you talk a little bit about where where you're seeing the worst? 
They are. Um, they are massive importers um, of food and and it also is a, a confluence with with conflict. Seventy uh, percent of those who are most food insecure are in conflict areas. So uh, certainly Yemen uh, and the Horn of Africa, uh, Ethiopia, uh, Sudan, South Sudan. Uh, so those are the parts of the world that we see Afghanistan too, um, that we see the highest levels of food food insecurity um, across the largest percentages of of those large populations. So I think you you've written a book on on the Middle East. I, I think that you have a, a particular uh, knowledge base about about that part of the world. What is food insecurity like there in 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 kind of Middle Eastern countries right now? Well, uh, you see many big Middle Eastern um, food importers, uh, and some of them, the Gulf countries, of course, they import a lot of food, but they have plenty of money to do so. Other countries, such as Egypt, which is one of the world's largest food importers, um, it's it's highly costly for them. You know, they have been a huge importer from both Russia and Ukraine, and to see um, their uh, traditional supplies so disrupted. Um, on top of all the other supply chain issues and inflationary pressures and everything we've talked about, it has been um, a, a really big impact for the poorest of the poor in countries such as Egypt. Um, Lebanon is another big food importer also from uh, Ukraine and from Russia. So we've seen a big impact there. Um, and I mentioned, of course, Yemen already, conflict-affected country, um, also a very big in-food porter. Uh, uh, food importer that is dependent on um, on a lot of humanitarian assistance. And so, you know, those are just a couple. But then across the region, North Africa, you see um, the poorest of the poor in all these countries facing a bigger import bill and bigger food uh, prices. So I'm interested in in uh, you talking a little bit about the specifics of of what is uh, what the shortfalls are from the conflict in in Ukraine. And I know, for a lot of developed countries, a lack of vegetable oil or you know some diminishment of, of wheat uh, imports may not be the, the difference between life and death. But in developing countries, those are our staple you know daily food items. Um, how much of those of barley, wheat, you know sunflower oil uh, have how how far down are these countries um, uh, in terms of their normal supplies? Yeah, well, it, you're you're absolutely right the way you've characterized it. Um, I would note that the two big um, uh, food uh, exports from Ukraine that have been most affected are uh, corn, also known as maize, and wheat. These are the ones that uh, the poor countries are um, very dependent on importing. Uh, a little over half of um, the grains coming out of Ukraine have been going to less developed countries, around 55%. And for wheat, it's about 65%. And so you've really seen a big gap uh, there emerge with taking so much of Ukraine's exports off the market. So uh, today there, we're missing around uh, 11 million tons of uh, wheat exports that traditionally have gone to the poorest countries. 
um, that's that's just a huge impact on on the world um, and on the global you know supply chain uh, for food. You've seen other big producers uh, in response plant more wheat. Um, you've seen markets such as Australia, India, the United States, others that uh, do produce wheat uh, stand up to produce more. But uh, these are traditional supply chains. Uh, the countries that I mentioned, you know, Afghanistan, Yemen, Egypt, the Horn of Africa, it's too expensive for them to import uh, American wheat. Uh, so losing that wheat that comes out of the Black Sea is shipped through the Suez Canal uh, directly to, say, the Horn of Africa at a lower price point. It, it's it's a really big hit for food insecure people in these um, parts of of uh, of the world. I would just note that the World Food Program, which provides a lot of the humanitarian assistance, the food assistance to these food insecure countries around the world, they have uh, sourced about half of their grains out of Ukraine uh, in recent years. They've continued to do that. Um, we, the United States, we USAID, we provide um, uh, more than, than half the World Food Program's budget and uh, about $7.2 billion we provided to the World Food Program last year. And a lot of that is going to um, provide food to these food insecure areas that we've been talking about. So I'm interested if if the war continues. Um, so first of all, what are plantings like that as far in as much as we know in Russia and in Ukraine for this summer uh, on those kind of commodity row crops? And if the war continues for another year, another couple of years, um, what will that impact be in those really hard hit, you know, South Sudan, et cetera, those those kinds of parts of the world? So plantings in Ukraine are down by about a third overall. Um, it's a combination of factors. Some of it is that the land, it's in the east of the country, but a big part of the breadbasket is in the east of the country where it's either um, literally in the midst of conflict or very close to the front line. So um, farmers have you know, been incredibly brave. They've donned flak jackets and driven their tractors through fields that may or may not be mined. You know, they've taken enormous personal risk uh, to continue planting. Uh, but we are seeing that some of those fields are out of just out of production because they're in conflict areas. Um, farmers have also suffered in Ukraine because they've not, you know, prices have gone up for them, their inputs uh, for seeds and fertilizer. Um, we haven't even talked about fertilizer. That's another piece of this, um, that Russia is a huge fertilizer um, exporter, as is um, um, uh, Belarus, which um, even prior to the war, because of um, uh activities that they had been doing, uh, downing a plane with a journalist on it. I mean, real, um, uh, just uh, atrocious uh, um, um, political um, uh, uh, obstacles that they placed in, in the way of um, anybody speaking out in, in Belarus had been under sanctions by the Europeans. So you've already seen um, a uh, challenge in terms of some of the big fertilizer producers that has um, float across the world as an input to um, uh, having productive crops. And so um, 
Ukrainian farmers are not immune from that. You've seen them struggle to purchase the seeds and the fertilizer that they need. So you've had a reduction in acreages planted. You've had less um, uh, crops planted in some respects. And then, of course, you've had the enormous struggle for the Ukrainians to get their grain out of the country. Traditionally, it has been exported through the Black Sea on big ships, um, and Russia then blocked that um, as an export route. For five months, there were no uh, grain exports coming out of the Black Sea, and that was a big shock to the system. You saw food prices really spike because of that. Um, with the Black Sea Grain Initiative that came into place in August of last year, you did begin to see grain exports again from Ukraine through the Black Sea. Um, and uh, that was a huge help. Uh, but Russia continues to throw up obstacles um, every day on that Black Sea Grain Initiative, uh, threatening to cancel it. Um, just putting a lot of bureaucratic uh, impediments in the way so that they can't uh, uh, process the ships coming in and out. Uh, the month of May was the lowest uh, amount of grains that have gotten out through the Black Sea since the initiative started. It was only uh, just a little over a million tons, whereas back in October, it was 4.2 million tons. Uh, so one of the biggest issues is just when uh, they are harvesting their crops, which is right now, they're they're right in the process of harvesting their spring crop is being able to export it. And they have uh, been able to export a bit overland uh, through the Danube um, uh, and barges uh, through through that route and overland through Poland to other ports. But it's just not nearly as efficient and effective as as going out through the Black Sea. So there was an awful lot of talk last spring about what the nitrogen-based fertilizer shortfall would mean uh, for commodity row crops and that it would cause uh, lower yields, but also um, perhaps a pivot to different crops, you know, away from corn, which requires a lot, towards soy, et cetera. Are we seeing uh, diminished yields either for smallholder farmers or, you know, across different major exporter countries? Um, and are we seeing a shift in what's being grown because, as a result? We're certainly seeing um, uh, some decreases in yields, particularly among smallholder farmers who've not been able to purchase you know, expensive fertilizers. Um, they have been turning more towards organic fertilizers, biomass, what you know, different um, uh, options there, but uh, the yields have been have been lower um, for those who have reduced the amount of um, uh, fertilizer that they've been able to access. Um, so you know that that is a, a real challenge. Now, just to remind, fertilizer is not sanctioned. Everybody um, uh, recognizes in the world that it is a life-saving input, and so fertilizer has not been sanctioned, but there have been disruptions to the global fertilizer trade because of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Um, and, you know, you've seen, as I said, Belarus, which was a big potash exporter, uh, being um, sanctioned by the EU, not necessarily on the fertilizer, but on the use of the export routes, um, which uh, really makes it difficult for them to get fertilizer out. Um, Russia, too, is not uh, sanctioned on its export of fertilizer, but some of the big um, uh, export um, channels have 
been harder for it to access uh, companies de-risking, not wanting to deal with Russian companies. So you've just seen a lot of disruptions in the fertilizer uh, space. And uh, recently there was an a pipeline that was blown up across Ukraine that transported ammonia. Um, uh, that has not been in, in use uh, since the war began, but it does uh, take out the possibility of that coming back online anytime soon. So everybody's scrambling to figure out different um, uh, supplies of, um, of fertilizer. We at USAID, we've been working with some of the biggest fertilizer companies around the world, um, uh, Dangote in Nigeria, Yara in in Norway, to um, try to get more fertilizer in the hands of smallholder farmers, particularly in sub-Saharan Africa, uh, to address your point right up front of those um, uh, smaller yields for smallholder farmers, and to reverse that uh, that trend because um, you know smaller yields smaller crops, um, less income, less food security, it becomes a real downward spiral. So we're very focused on that too. So Chef Jose Andres recently wrote a, a piece for the Washington Post, an opinion piece, in which he said, global hunger is a national security threat. And I think from an outsider perspective, you don't put those things together. How, how do you think about that? And does that kind of comport with your, your perspective? Well, for me, of course, it's first and foremost a global humanitarian crisis. I mean, people's lives are at stake, um, but of course it has national security implications too. You see hungry people, um, they then, when they reach a level of, of real desperation, they, they move um, and the influx of people into neighboring countries can be very destabilizing. The movement of people within countries can be destabilizing. Um, you you see um, an alignment of um, some really um, uh, insidious networks, trafficking in people, trafficking in drugs, trafficking in arms. Um, you know this is fueled by people's desperation, and it really does start with food insecurity. Um, so you know there's I, I think. Uh, you can't talk about security, you can't talk about national security without starting with food security. It is the, the most important thing. Um, it's the most um, uh, uh, primal need that people have is, is to be able to feed their children. And without that, they will take uh, truly desperate measures. So we have just about a minute left. So I'll ask a very impossible question for you to answer in a minute. Um, but in terms of the things the U.S. government can do right now to impact this this global food crisis, what are the the three or four bullet points of of you know the the greatest uh, impact? So we've touched upon a couple of them already. You know we're really pushing um, greater access to fertilizer and to uh, the other inputs that farmers need. Seeds. I mean we are spending. $150 million a year on innovation labs around the world, 13 of them in the United States at, um, at uh, uh, 13 American universities. Our drought-resistant seeds um, for maize, for example, are already um, being planted on 18 million acres in sub-Saharan Africa. This has produced an extra billion dollars of food production and economic activity. So drought-resistant seeds um, in response to the climate change, 
fertilizer, um, and then for that severe acute malnutrition that we've been talking about, we're investing a lot more in ready-to-use therapeutic food. We did an unprecedented uh, grant to UNICEF last year to increase access for millions of children uh, to uh, RUTF, uh, ready-to-use therapeutic food, which you know, just with a, a packet um, applied over six weeks can help bring kids back from the brink of, of starvation. So we're looking at um, that crisis response, but also really in investing more in um, food uh, production, food systems, food security, um, making sure that farmers have access to climate smart agriculture, um, including drought resistant seeds, um, and putting all of that together to make more countries, more um, food uh, secure, more resilient, and more able to weather um, these uh, food crises that are being compounded by drought and certainly by conflict. Well, we'll continue to follow this story. Um, Isabel Coleman, thank you so much for joining us here on Washington Post Live. Uh, and thank you all for joining us. Please stay with us for the next segment uh, of this conversation. The following segment was produced and paid for by a Washington Post Live event sponsor. The Washington Post newsroom was not involved in the production of this content. My name is Lana Wong from the Diverse Women Speakers Bureau, moderate the panel. Today, I'm honored to speak with Baron Seeger, the president and CEO of World Food Program USA, the DC-based nonprofit that supports the United Nations World Food Program by mobilizing American businesses, policymakers, and individuals to help feed the world's hungriest people. This work is more urgent than ever as the world faces record high levels of hunger amidst the humanitarian aid, stagnation, and budget cuts. What can we all do to achieve a zero hunger world? Let's speak to Barron and find out. So Barron, welcome, let's dive in. After decades in decline, the world is now facing an unprecedented world food hunger crisis, with 345 million people facing severe hunger. What's driving the current crisis? So Lana, uh, thank you. Um, and you're, you're right, the world is facing a true hunger crisis. Uh, right now, today, there are 43 million people around this world that are marching toward starvation, marching toward famine. Uh, every 10 seconds, so think about the time that we're talking today, every 10 seconds, a child will die of an illness related to malnutrition and hunger. And that's unacceptable. So why? Number one, conflict. Ripple effects of Ukraine are continuing and devastation, conflict, wars happening in places like Sudan. Climate, the impact that we're having on climate with drought and floods, drought in a place like the Horn of Africa, floods in Pakistan. The interesting thing for me, Lana, is that countries that contribute the least to climate are many times the countries that are impacted at the highest level. They're suffering the worst and cost. In places like Lebanon, we've seen a 2,000% increase in inflation. And basically, that means that people can't afford to eat. It's such a challenging time. And amidst all of this, the UN World Food Program is facing significant funding shortages despite this incredible need. How is WFP helping to alleviate hunger in such challenging circumstances? 
Elena, I would say uh, we're 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 grateful. Uh, we're grateful that um, we've gotten support from the U.S. government. We've gotten support from the private sector. Um, but uh, unfortunately, we need more. Uh, last year, the World Food Program received 14 billion dollars, and uh, and you know the need is is around two. Actually, looking at the latest statistic, over $23 billion that's needed today. Uh, we don't want to be put in a position of who eats and who doesn't eat, but we're using data to decide how to allocate resources to the most vulnerable. We are pre-positioning supplies and we're doing food rations to the most vulnerable. But we have to remember what happens when there's no funding. What happens is hunger thrives. What happens is women and children suffer the most, and that's just not acceptable. I absolutely agree. And I should say that there are so many other things that WFP is also working on besides just the emergency food drops that I'm sure most viewers are familiar with. So can you let us know about some of these lesser known WFP initiatives that are equally important? Yeah, sure. When most people think about the World Food Program, they see the big planes doing the uh, the airdrops. They think about food rations. And, and yes, 80% of our work is in emergency situations, and many of these are protracted. Uh, but I've seen the work firsthand traveling to places like Central South America, where you see smallholder farmers. These are female farmers. And the World Food Program has provided training and support and we're helping them take products to the market. It's really an overwhelmingly positive situation. Uh, right now, the World Food Program providing 15 million school meals. And what is this doing? It's having such a positive impact on communities. Enrollment, child nutrition, and local economies are being sustained. It's creating jobs, it's creating skills, training young people, again, providing sustainability, solutions to hunger. Fantastic innovations. The school meals are a powerful lever on so many fronts. And so what can you tell our viewers? What can they do to help join the hunger or the movement to end hunger? What can we all do to help? So it's a really important time right now. We have to make sure that that our policymakers are hearing from people inside the United States. Uh, there are some important decisions that are being made today. And I'm urging everybody that's listening today to contact your policymaker. Let them know that the World Food Program needs help from the U.S. government at the highest level and that we can't accept anybody going hungry on this earth. I would also just say that there's no contribution that's too small or too big uh, to the World Food Program. And so we're really relying on policymakers to do the right thing, increase funding to the World Food Program and the private sector, incredibly important to make sure that you're going on this journey to solve hunger. And we have a great website, wfpusa.org. Great stories, great ways to get, in, to get involved. I'm just urging you, I'm pleading with you, please get involved with the World Food Program through the World Food Program USA. Thank you, Baron, so much for this critical conversation and for that important call to action. So all of us, let's talk to our policymakers, get on the phone, get on your email, get, go to the website, and let's all take action to achieve a zero hunger world. Thank you so much. And now let's go back to our colleagues at the Washington Post.
And now, back to Washington Post Live. Welcome back. For those of you just joining us, welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Laura Riley, a reporter covering the business of food at The Post. I'm now joined by Alex Chequiem, co-founder and CEO of Digifarm Smart Agriculture. Alex, welcome to Washington Post Live. Hi, Laura. It's my pleasure. Great. Well, so I think that you yourself come from a farming family, and I'd love to hear a little bit about what, what you farmed and where and, and how that led you to where you are now. Oh, great. Oh, great. Yeah, my great grandpa immigrated from the north, uh, immigrated from the north of Italy to the south of Brazil. And since then, they've been farming. So uh, they they started, of course, with uh, uh, grapes and they moved to uh, cattle, so livestock, and also uh, then to row crops. So my life uh, was in this, you know, this intersection where I coming from a farmer's family, very connected to agriculture, but also uh, as an entrepreneur. Uh, so I had uh, nine companies before Digifarms and also working with technology. I, I started to work with technology when I was nine years old. And that's the, you know, the, the, the point of intersection that I've been living this uh, 40, 44 years now. <laughs> So what led you to agriculture as kind of one of your, your newest ventures and, and what what problems are you trying to solve for? Awesome. So all my all my previous companies were were related to agriculture and Digifarms is uh, exactly in this moment, the this huge problem. And we just heard from the other interviews, uh, the challenge that we have to increase yield and increase food production. So if we consider what we are now, uh, you know, getting from yield, we are getting one third of the total potential yield. And so it's something strange if you can go to three times what you are getting and you are just getting that one third. And if you need to uh, use in a more, you know, smart way, those resources. So we have at the same time, the demand to increase yield, to increase food production, while we need to save and to use uh, wisely uh, the resources. So Digifarms is helping exactly on that. So we need to, you know, to avoid the recipe. We need to understand that, uh, especially for the small and medium farmers, they need to understand what is the best combination of products, practices, uh, so doses of products and everything that they need to use uh, for the very reality of each plot. So Digifarm is increasing the, is increasing the yield by 10 to 50% because it's a very you know easy to use platform, but it's very powerful of what we are considering uh, behind of all those uh, algorithms. So we have 52 parameters right now. We have more than 20 years of field data. We are running field trials, greenhouse trials uh, in South America and here in the US as well. So it's a lot of combination of data uh, and it's the way that the farmers can understand since the beginning of the planning moment that they are uh, understanding what the best genetics they need to use, when they will sow or plant, uh, all the, you know, combination of products, doses, tank mix and everything. So it's uh, it's it's the first wave. It's very commit, committed. We are very committed to help them, them to increase yield. But we need to understand that we are not uh, focusing in this uh, first wave. 
we are in a long term uh, you know, uh, journey. So the first point is help them to increase the yield uh, and produce more food in a more sustainable way and with more quality. But then we, we are now moving uh, to the moment that we will be able to help the farmers to do it in a, uh, in a regenerative agriculture way. So it's a, a moment that the farmers, they are struggling to in, improve uh, their you know, decisions, to make better decisions and increase the yield and food production. But everybody is talking about sustainability and regenerative agriculture. So DigiFarms is now starting the second wave so the farmers will be able to understand what they need to do if they want to you know just uh, increase the yield but if they need at the same time to produce more uh, but uh, following the best practice of regenerative agriculture as well so i am guessing that uh the people watching this right now maybe one percent of them have something to do with agriculture maybe a little higher just given the topic but just on average in the US, it's between one and 2% of people have something to do with agriculture. So I wanna ask some kind of basic questions. So I have read that uh, develop, in developed countries, we're seeing that diminished yield or flattened yield uh, in terms of, 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 you know, we've had decades and decades of, of growth in, in the US and in other big ag exporter countries. Uh, but that we've also seen that diminished yield in small smallholder farmers or um, you know developing countries. Can you just in a very you know non-techie way describe what are the challenges that are driving that diminishment of yield? So uh, we need to understand in a very simple uh, you know language. We need to understand that the scenario it's very complex and is and it's becoming more complex every year. So we have more products available, new disease, uh, new disease happening, new op, uh, at the same time we have new, you know, um, um, genetics, uh, new biological products, chemical pro products and everything. So the scenario, it's very, very complex and it's and it's becoming more complex every year. And because of that, the farmers and agronomists, they are making mistakes in the decision making that mistakes, those mistakes are generating, uh, you know, damages, so metabolic, uh, physiological uh, um, damages, and those damages are generating losses. So we are now uh, in a flat moment. In some cases, we, we need to understand that it's the, we, we did a lot in biotechnology and other, you know, uh, evolutions, but now it's a moment that we need to use this new uh, technology, there is uh, information uh, technology to understand when, how, how much we need to use uh, all, all, all uh, you know, the available resources. And so the point is understanding what you need to do, you be able to avoid those mistakes and avoiding those mistakes, you will reduce, you know, the, you know, the, the damages and the losses. And this is directly how we are increasing the yield and how we'll be able to increase the yield doing th uh, the, all the things at the right time and at the right, you know, uh, quantity and with at the right decision. So correct me if I'm wrong. So DigiFarms, it's a it's a subscription service. Would you call it precision ag or is that an, an appropriate term for, for what you're doing? Or is there another kind of term that you use to describe the, the service you're providing? 
Yeah, it's a subscription uh, software, so you pay a license per year regarding the size of your your farm. So this is very important to mention that it's uh, we did that that way because it's a way that we can make it more you know uh, democratic. So everybody, all small, medium, and large farmers are able to use DigiFarms because we are providing agnostic data agnostic suggestions and recommendations. So even the small farmers, we have in Brazil uh, more than 1,200 of farmers using DigiFarms, not only in Brazil, but also in Paraguay. And now we started the operation here in the US and it's a very, very simple to use platform, uh, but it's at the same time very powerful, how, how I mentioned. And it's a, it's a, a payment per year, per acre, so it's from $3 to 50 cents. So if you are very small, you start paying $3 per year per acre and you go uh, you know, up to 50 cents uh, per, per acre per year. And it's, it's uh, accessible by a web browser or uh, by uh, app. So iOS or Android. And so it's a, it's a platform very affordable. Uh, and again, you have the, you know, the power as a farmer and as agronomist to make the best decision, the better decision every day. Uh, there's a lot of resources, a lot of, you know, new technologies, um, uh, you know, that's that's new things happening. But we, we understand that this is the digital agriculture. We had the precision ag uh, and now precision ag, it's also more digital. But this technology, technologies like digital farms, we, we can uh, call it digital, uh, digital farm or digital ag. Great. So um, is it the kind of thing where you're collecting data and having it anonymized so that you can then kind of year over year have greater uh, kind of regional understanding of, you know, what different inputs do or what, uh, you know, a La Nina or El Nino year might mean for a particular region? Um, and then would that data be something that then is available on a platform like Grow Intelligence or one of the bigger kind of aggregators of agricultural data? Great, great question, Laura. Uh, yes, the, the way that we develop DigiFarms, there are a lot of other solutions that we are connecting. So we are now connected to a sort of other, like a, a several other platforms, regular platforms, precision ag platforms. But the way that we develop DigiFarms, we use different approaches, okay? So there are some solutions that are just focusing in AI. So have a lot of data, so gather a lot of data, and from that amount of data, they create models, and those models are, you know, part of the solution. So we, we use a different, completely different approach. It's very important to mention my, my business partner and, and uh, the other co-founder of DigiFarms, Ricardo Ballardin, that has more than 35 years of, you know, experience in field trials, uh, also in greenhouse trials. Uh, he has a, a PhD in Michigan State University. So uh, we've been developing DigiFarms uh, since 2015, and we use at that time uh, more than 12 years of field data, but we use different approaches. We use heuristic modeling processes, uh, different uh, heuristic modeling, uh, logistic, logarithmic, so different modeling processes. And we decompound all the parameters that are responsible for to build up yield and in real time this is being recreated for the very reality of each plot each field uh, of our clients so 
it's the way that the you know the the system it's very smart because it can it's it it's it's the way that you can understand what is the best for you not all as a farmer of course uh sometimes you you don't have you are not you know uh, uh, able to buy the best uh, genetic or product and digifarms understands it and can help you at in the same uh, level that a huge and large farmer so uh, digifarms uh, works in everywhere and it's very powerful because we use different approaches and also the way that we are doing this it's combining other sources of data so we are now connected to a lot of weather uh, sources of data even low altitude satellites uh, other microwave uh, radio frequency radio radio frequency uh, um, sources of weather uh, satellite images and though the other platforms that we are connected climate field climate field view sap uh, john deere uh, trimble ag leader so a lot of other platforms so it's uh, the point is there's a lot of data uh, of course the data it's uh, it's something that we are very responsible so each each account has uh, it uh, no own data and it's not shared so the the farmers are on uh, they they have the you know the ability to delete they can delete their their data if they want but the point is we are using a lot of field trials and greenhouse trials so we are getting we I, i've mentioned we use we use now 52 parameters there are a lot of for example curve of doses interaction between different genetics with different kind of you know products biological chemicals uh the different combinations of them different doses so all those parameters we are getting from field trials and greenhouse trials it's the only way that we can get those data without any kind of you know uh bias like uh, getting from different directly from companies so that's why we are running a lot of field trials in, in, in Brazil, in more than 170 uh, different places, also in Paraguay. And here in the West, we are partnered with universities. So University of Purdue, University uh, of Illinois in Champaign and other universities and entities uh, that are very committed to this, you know, this moment that we are to increase food production, to increase uh, yield, and at the same time doing it in a more sustainable way. And we need to understand that the food must be increased, but it must be accessible. Accessible. Uh, there's no way to produce more if it costs costs more, and people that need to eat won't be able to afford. You know, won't be able to to buy that food. So we are in the same, uh, you know, in the same moment at this at this moment in this um, you know challenge to increase yield in a more sustainable way, but at the same time, uh, time it must be affordable. In so I think I've, I've I've read that it you're working with 20 commodity row crops. Are there applications for Digi Farms for specialty crops, the, the foods that we eat? And and you said that you're doing greenhouse trials, but would this have applications for indoor vertical or for some of the other kind of new urban ag options that we're seeing kind of spring up semi-successfully all over the place? Yeah. So Laura, uh, you know we are we are an, um, a startup. So we started in 2015 to develop all the you know the solution. We launched DigiFarms only in 2020. So uh, we are we are a you know a early stage uh, startup. So we have yes 22 mapped uh, um, crops, but we are going uh, you know step by step. 
uh, crop by crop. So we started from the row, row, row crops. Now we have uh, soybean, uh, wheat, and other winter cereals. We are launching now uh, corn, and then we will be moving to the you know uh, to the other other uh, crops. The point is that's why at this moment we are raising uh, you know around uh, raising money for this uh, this you know to speed up this roadmap and to launch the new the new. Uh, crops and also new features that we've been developing. So the point is, because we are uh, deep tech and we use a lot of data, it's not so easy to expand to all those uh, crops at the same time. So we thought we, we started from the, the row crops, but now uh, we are expanding. Of course, specialty crops are very important. They are, uh, you know, uh, uh, more, there's there's a little bit more challenge uh, uh, related because it's uh, it's different, a lot of different uh, species and different varieties. But we've been working in some in some data and in some models. And as soon as we will be ready, uh, we'll be uh, we'll be launching the the solution for this um, those kind of crops as well. Of course, the ver vertical or indoor. Um, you know, agriculture will be covered by our, by our our solution. The idea for the first point is we are not focusing only in row crops. We started from row crops because it's the way that we can scale up uh, and we can you know uh, create more impact uh, in a short you know uh, term. But we are very committed to provide value for the humanity and all the society from the short, medium, uh, and up to the, the, the long term as well. Alex, this has been such a treat. You know, it's, it's all stuff I'm super fascinated by, and I, I think our audience is as well. Um, unfortunately, that's all the time we have. So thank you for joining us on Washington Post Live. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.